putting the power and the decision-making back into the community's hands, because we believe that those that are, you know, closest to the problems and the issues are also closest to the solutions. So they need to be a part of the conversations around looking at our community and affecting social change. Hey, y'all, welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathien, and every other week I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers out there. So this week, I am sitting down with my friend, Elizabeth Park. She's one of our mentors at Second Day. She has been in the philanthropy space for a few years now. And so we're going to be talking about a lot of really important questions around the way that money moves in the nonprofit world and what that means for power dynamics, what opportunities that creates for young people who want to break into social impact. So I'm really, really excited to dig into all those topics today. Elizabeth Park is the Donor Engagement Associate at Brooklyn Community Foundation, the first and only public foundation dedicated to Brooklyn's vibrant nonprofit community. Through their strategic grant making, the foundation is prioritizing community-led, grassroots organizations that are often overlooked by larger philanthropic institutions. She joined the team in April 2021 and provides core support to their development team with a focus on guiding giving with a racial justice lens and growing an engaged network of partners and supporters. Previously, she worked as the executive and development coordinator on the strategic partnerships team at Mission Capital, which is a capacity building nonprofit working to advance equity and opportunity in Central Texas. We will break down all of those terms in this conversation. And prior to Mission Capital, Elizabeth graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a BA in international relations and anthropology and minors in Middle Eastern studies and Arabic. We are incredibly excited to dig into all of this today. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being willing to sit down on a Thursday morning with me and sort of talk about your career path into social impact. I'm particularly excited about this conversation because, you know, you graduated a couple of years ago and you've identified really interesting sort of unexpected organizations in social impact, ones that people don't automatically think of when they're coming out of college thinking, I want to work in social good. People automatically think of nonprofits, maybe working at a social enterprise, maybe working in government. And that's sort of the extent of what they know is out there. So I think it's going to be really exciting to hear from you that there are a lot of other really, really interesting and important organizations supporting social impact. Thank you so much for you know having me here. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. And just to talk about all those things, I think, as you mentioned, like social impact, it's really that career space is a spectrum. And so I'm really excited to kind of dive into those different career paths and opportunities that exist in the space. I'd love to hear first, how did social impact in general as a career path sort of show up as something in your life that you wanted to pursue? Did you fall into it? Was it something that had always been a part of your life? Talk to me a little bit about how you landed in this in this ecosystem. Yeah. So I I feel like I landed in it intentionally, but also unexpectedly. I think social impact has always been kind of this ever-present force in my life. I think I always knew I really wanted to work in community and work in community with others and work with the communities that I live in. And so that was always really important to me. And I knew in that sense, 
that social impact was kind of the direction I wanted to go in. However, it didn't really feel tangible to me, I think, until I was in college and I was learning more about the different opportunities that are out there. And even still in college, I don't think all of the options were visible to me at that point. I think really I didn't know the full breadth of what that field was. And like I mentioned, it is truly a spectrum and there are so many options that exist in this space. And I'm still learning about those options. I think when I started my career in the social impact space, I was learning so much and it's a space that is also always evolving and changing. And that's what makes it so exciting, but it can also be overwhelming for someone who's looking to enter into that field. Um, But that's what I really love about it specifically is just that ability to see change in movement all the time and be a part of that. I I totally agree with you that it's one, it's a spectrum, but it's constantly evolving. You're never going to be, no one is ever going to be a subject matter expert in social impact because it's just, it's too big. It's too complicated. And also I think the way that people define social impact and the fact that they have a social impact job is very different, right? So I guess for you, when you think about like social impact and you mentioned working with communities, what to you is a mark of like a social impact career, just even for yourself? That's such a good question. And I would, you know, I'm going to go back to that. Just being in community with people has been such one of the most rewarding parts of working in the social impact space. Um, And when I say that, I'm really talking about being in community with the communities that you are serving and having an impact there, but also being in community with the people I'm working with on a daily basis and just having them as mentors and truly something that I'm so grateful for in the nonprofit sector is the people that I work with. They're incredibly passionate. They are very intelligent. Some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And, you know, we all come from different backgrounds as well. So I think there's so much learning there and something that we commonly say at both of the organizations I've worked at is together we know a lot. And so I really love being in that space where you're doing so much community building, again, with the communities that you're serving, but also just the people who have dedicated their careers to to serving that community and something I really enjoy. And that's kind of what defines social impact for me is just working together. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really smart. And because, you know, obviously in every industry, there's a certain level of collaboration and teamwork, but I do think that there is something special about communities of teams of employees, but also the communities that they're working with and partnering with and the type of collaboration that happens there because there's working towards this shared larger purpose. And I think that just kind of elevates the way that you work together and the way that you learn from each other. I worked at a really big bank once upon a time and That was certainly lots of people around me, but I don't think, and I I certainly learn a lot, but it just is not the same effect as when you're like working with people who are focused on social change. It's just a very different energy and type of educational experience for sure. I'm in full agreement with that. And yeah, I think what you said, just working towards that common goal, like we know we want social change and just having that mission alignment too with the people that you work with um, is really powerful. And so before you sort of entered the social impact world as a working person, what were some of your assumptions or things that you thought you wanted in social impact? You mentioned that, you know, you didn't really see the full breadth of options when you were in college, which is a very common story, but yeah. What were some of the assumptions you had about it before you came in and have those been met? Have they been exceeded? Like what, what was that actual kind of transition like? It was a transition that I still think is in the works. And again, like I said, I'm constantly learning in this space, but an assumption that I really had before working 
for the first nonprofit organization I worked for, Mission Capital, was that nonprofit organizations only do direct service work. And when I say that, like I'm thinking of, you know, it's always commonly thought that nonprofits, they're the organizations that are serving the puppies, the babies, again, that direct service work with the communities, which is wonderful and so important. Um, and that is very true of the nonprofit world, but there's also organizations that are really focused on advocacy and organizing and capacity building. And I didn't really know about those organizations. I always thought I would be in a direct service role and I haven't been. Um, since I've graduated, I've worked at a capacity building organization and then now I work at a community foundation. And so I've really worked at two places that are kind of hubs for different sectors to come together, for different groups to come together, donors, nonprofit organizations, and again, the communities that we serve. Those organizations, I feel like typically because of the common narrative with nonprofits, you don't usually see those. They seem invisible, but they are there and they're doing really incredible work. And so that was one of the main assumptions I had and then which changed now just based on what my work has been. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I totally agree when I told people that I am starting my own nonprofit. I think a lot of people's heads went to like, oh, you're starting a, a shelter or like a food bank. And that's people have a very one dimensional view of what the space is. So I love that you brought this up. How did you land your job at Mission Capital? If it was not something that you had really known capacity building organizations are a thing, how did you end up finding that role? And what was that process like for you? Yeah, so I had heard about the organization when I was in college. I did a couple of internships with nonprofit organizations that were more direct service. And so again, I didn't really know about like capacity building. I was like, what is that? I have no idea what that is. I, I don't really know how a capacity building organization operates. And so really when I was in college, I just kind of started putting myself out there. I really connected with our career services department. I knew I wanted to go into social impact and I wanted to be able to connect with some of the organizations that were in Austin where I went to school. And so, um, and really about like for me, I was kind of like, I don't really know what issue area I want to focus on right now. Like, I don't have an idea of that yet. I know I want to work in social change, but I don't know if there's a specific issue area that I feel like I need to go into that direction. How do I get there? And so when I heard about Mission Capital, which is a capacity building organization, and when I think of capacity building organizations, I think of them really being at the intersection of different sectors and of the social space. And so I really saw it as a learning opportunity for me to really be able to understand community issues and for me to get kind of a deeper dive into, you know, what Austin is and what the community was. And you get to work with so many different nonprofit organizations. You get to learn about their missions and it's really about strengthening the community. And so that was really appealing to me especially because I was in college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I felt like this was kind of the perfect direction for me to go in so I could learn more. And when I define it, I know there's so many definitions um, and capacity building is changing. I think currently it's something that's evolving. But when I think of capacity building, I think about it as a lot of times it's strengthening nonprofit organizations and working with nonprofit organizations to kind of remove the barriers that might be in the way of them achieving their vision or mission. And so with Mission Capital, um, what I knew about Mission Capital going into it is that we had a consulting team that worked with nonprofits on certain things like executive leadership transitions, on mergers, on things that happen in the nonprofit space that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and these are just 
things that nonprofit organizations have to work through. And when I say capacity building is evolving, I really think it's evolving in the right direction because so much of what traditional capacity building has been, I think has kind of, has been manifested in white dominant culture and white supremacy. And so that was another exciting thing for me is that you know, we're reevaluating all of that now and looking at capacity building through a race equity lens. And so it's changing. So I think when I define it, I know that the way that I'm defining it even now could be it's it's changing in the moment. But I do think that's what made me really intrigued by capacity building as well as like I wanted to be a part of that change and really shifting the narrative around what capacity building could be and to not reinforce that, that white dominant system, but move into a different direction that's more around community care and more around racial justice and equity. Yeah. Uh, there's so many things that you, that you spoke about that I want to kind of dig into. The, the first thing that just kind of stood out to me as you started was I talked to a lot of young people and students who say that they want to go into consulting as a career because they think it's going to give them exposure to a lot of industries and that's how they'll figure out where they want to go and they'll build their skills. And it kind of struck me that capacity building organizations operate very similarly from like an educational perspective. You get exposed to a lot of different types of sectors and organizations and issue areas. And you're sitting, like you said, right at the center. So I think it's just like an interesting call out for people who are still trying to figure out what it is that they're interested in it's a great way to expose yourself to a lot of different things going on. But the other thing that you talked about, which I think is so important is that the way that capacity building, and I would argue a lot of social impact is shifting or attempting to shift the conversation and their practices out of this white dominant culture and white supremacy, because the nonprofit space in particular has been, I mean, leadership is 80% white. It has historically been people who can afford to work unpaid internships We've been creating a very homogenous industry for decades, if not centuries. So I think this is just a really important call out. We are so far from solving this problem and untangling these threads, but I'd love to hear just in your you know, experience being at Mission Capital, what were some of the conversations or changes that you were really excited and that you would be keeping an eye on moving forward in the social impact world? Yeah, that's another great question. And it is such an important, like, again, I think the whole social, just reiterating the whole social impact space is kind of going through this shift or at least starting the conversation. And so when I joined, I joined in a moment of lots of change where we were having these conversations around racial equity and how do we reevaluate our programs or even rebuild our programs to be centered in that like race equity lens. And so that was really important. And I feel like a lot of nonprofit organizations are having that conversation or again, have started to have that conversation. I'm in fundraising. So I started in fundraising. I'm still in fundraising now. I work in philanthropy now. And so what really excites me is again, philanthropy and nonprofit organizations. If you just look back at the history of these two very big things and these big words that we talk about a lot and just the power structure, like being able to ask those questions of myself too, like, you know, what power structure am I reinforcing? And like, what do I actually, like, how do I flip those power dynamics on its head? Because I think especially working with donors, there's always been that narrative of the donors because they have access to wealth and have access to money that they are giving to organizations that they get to make the decisions. And so it's always been a very donor centric narrative. And so I'm really excited about being a part of a conversation that's more around like community centric. 
narrative and putting the power and the decision-making back into the community's hands, because, you know, we say at the community foundation I work at now is that like, we believe that those that are, you know, closest to the problems and the issues are also closest to the solutions. So they need to be a part of the conversations that we are having around looking at our community and affecting social change. Um, and so I just get really excited every time I think about fundraising and the direction we're going in is moving away from that donor-centric narrative and really questioning the history of it. And like, what are we still reinforcing when we are fundraising? So that's something that I'm still kind of learning more about. And I'm always, there's never going to be an end goal or an end point that I get to where I'm like, check the box, I'm good now. You know, I'm always going to be looking at my work through that race equity lens. And I think it's so important to do. That resonates so hard as a nonprofit that has had to fundraise, right? It's a really fine balance of trying to meet your donor where they're at and catering them too much that it it sends you away from what you want to do. And the other thing that I'll share is we are very particular at Second Day about the materials that we create for our donors, where we don't write anything on behalf of our students. We don't try and tell their stories. We don't want to, as I phrase it sometimes, pimp their trauma. Like they have their own stories that they are welcome to tell should they want to. And I think that I I genuinely think that it has made it harder for us to fundraise because we don't want to go in saying like, oh, look at our students and how much they need your help. And my poor students, like we, we really, really don't believe in doing that. We on many levels. So, but it's worked against us. So it's something we constantly are challenged with. And, and so it's just an interesting, it's like you said, there's a power dynamic and a push and pull. And so like naming that there are a lot of conversations that are changing, but a lot of people have been donating the same way for a long time and trying to get them to think differently is really hard, particularly in more conservative cities or communities where people have just been writing checks to the same people for like 30 years. And they're like, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. I feel good about it. I don't really want to do anything different. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard. Like you said, it's so, so challenging. It's something like I always tell people, I have this constant dilemma every day, you know, just being in fundraising. I love fundraising based on the relationship building aspects of it. And again, being able to be a part of those conversations around changing the narrative, but it's hard. And it's, you know, it's something that I have lots of feelings about, very complex feelings. And again, just kind of thinking through too, like you said, with donors and just how do I like have really intentional conversations with donors in order to move away from what you're talking about of just like not wanting to be a part of that change. Or again, this is the way we've been doing it forever. This has been the narrative. This has been like, it's my money. So like, I should be able to decide like, where it goes to and and how it's used. Um, And so I think I do get excited when we talk more about like trust-based philanthropy and moving away from that. Yeah. So I guess that you mentioned trust-based philanthropy. I'd love to get your thoughts. If someone is interested in the philanthropy space, in the fundraising space, development space, there's lots of words for it. What is some advice you have for people who are exploring that world? Maybe things they should look out for. So trust-based philanthropy is a great like marker of um, an organization that is trying not to perpetuate, like you said, a lot of these problematic dynamics. Uh, What are other things that people can look out for if they're interested in exploring this this industry? I would say, yeah, trust-based philanthropy, that project is very, like, you know, I would go there as a resource too, just to their website and just some of the, I know they have principles on just what it is to like change that narrative and flip the power dynamics. 
Um, another movement that is growing is community-centric fundraising. Community-centric fundraising has lots of great resources, connections to different resources and websites and tools. Um, and I think just entering philanthropy, just knowing that it is, it's a challenging to be in this space. And it has been challenging for me just to learn about, again, that power structure, but it's also very exciting. And there's a lot of momentum around kind of building trust in and trust back in with like, you know, we need to listen to our community. And if we're, you know, if we're serving these communities and they're not involved in that decision-making, like they need to be. So like, how can we have that conversation again? So just having, going into philanthropy with that as your guide. Yeah. So I think an easy thing that people can also do, it sounds like is even in interviews, right? Like let's say they are interviewing with an organization is asking these questions about how do you think about the way that you partner with communities holding them accountable to the kinds of solutions that they come up with. I think people often, and I've said this in the podcast before, but when you go into an interview, it's also about you getting to know them. It's not just about them getting to know you. So I think that those are things that you can kind of identify early. Sometimes just looking at a website doesn't tell you a lot about what's actually going on. So just naming that you can ask these questions in an interview. The other thing uh, we haven't totally dug into is that you currently work at a community foundation, which is very cool. So could you sort of explain to people what a community foundation is? How is it different from a more classic philanthropy or foundation? Talk us through that. So a community foundation is a tax-exempt public charity that's usually focused on serving um, a specific geographical area or region. So I work for the Brooklyn Community Foundation. We're solely dedicated to serving Brooklyn and the communities that live and exist in Brooklyn. And so it's the community foundation is different than a traditional foundation just because it is kind of a hub for donors, nonprofit organizations, and communities to come together. Donors, a lot of times, they direct their funds to a community foundation when they're thinking about having more impact with their giving. And a community foundation, because it is so close to the community that it's serving, they're typically more informed about the issues that are affecting that community. And so donors, a lot of time, are working in partnership with community foundations to kind of redirect their funds to these kind of ever-evolving community needs. And so I just actually attended a Council on Foundations Community Foundation Essentials course. And I really learned too that there's also so much variety in community foundations. There's community foundations across the United States um, of different sizes that serve different sizes of geographical areas. And so they're all very different, but I do think like the kind of the commonality between all of them is is that being very close to the community and so then being more informed on what those communities issues are. And then I think what's also really great about it is you're partnering with donors, but you're also partnering with nonprofit organizations. Um, so really partnering with those organizations to better understand the communities that they're serving. And again, how do you redirect funds to the communities that need those funds the most? That's kind of how I see community foundations in a nutshell. I'm still learning about them, but it's been really exciting to kind of be in this space that is, again, kind of an intersection point across different groups and different donors and different organizations. And I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, that's amazing. And you've been there, I know, just under a year. But I guess as you have transitioned into the Brooklyn community and been getting to learn about Brooklyn, and it is a really obviously dynamic, diverse place. What are some of the things that you've just been doing yourself to learn more about Brooklyn, about the communities that you're serving? Um, I'd love to hear about that journey for you. Yeah, that's a great question. And because Brooklyn is such a large 
borough and community as well. It would actually be the fourth largest city if it wasn't a New York City borough. So if it just kind of split off from New York City, we would be the fourth largest city in the United States. It's, it's a very diverse community. There's so much culture here. And so when I moved here, I really wanted to kind of go out and be in that community. Of course, it's a pandemic, so that makes things a little bit more challenging, but I would say like really networking. So what I've been doing too is really just wanting to connect with other people that, you know, either work with the community foundation I'm in, but also just some of the organizations that we're serving. I'm also trying to find, there's a lot of virtual events out there now. So just recently, um, there's the Asian American Federation in New York City. I've gone to some of their events just to really connect with other people and to understand, especially, you know, as we all continue to exist in this state of the pandemic, kind of what people are dealing with, um, you know, sharing what I'm dealing with as well. And just again, I keep saying this, but being in community with other people. Um, and that's been also just a very great way for me to learn more about Brooklyn. And there's so much more to learn about Brooklyn. Again, like I said, this is such a diverse community, so many cultures. I'm a daughter of an immigrant. So also just being able to connect with other immigrants who live in Brooklyn, who work in Brooklyn um, has been really amazing. And I really love it here. It's, it's great. So, and just working at a community foundation itself has provided a lot of connections too. So I can dive deeper into what the issues our communities are facing. Yeah, I think we've talked so much about community and connecting with people in this conversation through the context of being an effective, you know, social change maker in whatever capacity that might be for whoever you are. But I also want to name that we focus a lot on career building in this podcast, right? So one of the reasons that you and I had met and we connected is that you were a mentor to some of our second day students, which was amazing. And I know you had such an impact on the student. And I know you really enjoyed that experience. So from a career building perspective, I'd love to hear how mentorship and networking sort of factored in and maybe hear in your own words, why you think it's important, particularly when you want to break into social impact careers. Yeah, I would say networking is so important. And as someone too, who was kind of scared of networking, like it always felt like this big, scary thing that I didn't really quite know how to do. But really, it's just about being in conversation with people. And so, I mean, even through second day and just being able to connect with the students that I've mentored um, has been really, you know, also just a great experience for me. And as much as I hope they've learned from me, I've also learned so much from them and, and just being able to, again, be in conversation with people who have the same interests or are also interested in, you know, having a career path in social change you learn so much just from talking with other people. And so even in Austin, you know, there was a lot of events too, just, I think, especially if you're a young professional in the nonprofit sector, or just in the social impact space, it can be a little bit challenging and a little bit daunting. There are groups out there that I do feel like, you know, second day that are focused on building those connections, especially, you know, when those mentorship opportunities or those networking opportunities don't seem quite as clear. And so just, Again, being in community with people, being in conversation and just really viewing networking as just, I want to learn more. And, you know, we have to be in conversation with each other in order to do that. And uh, that's something that I really enjoy doing now um, and doesn't seem as scary as it was when I first graduated college. Yeah, I think people are going to, I know people kind of roll their eyes, but it is like the hill I will die on is like, you just have to talk to people. We yeah. can, you second day can provide all the resources and put everything online and do all sorts of stuff, which we do check out the launch pad. But at the end of the day, 
nothing can really beat just sitting down with someone who has built a career path in a certain space you're interested in and just hearing what they have to say about it and learning from them. And it surfaces new opportunities. It helps you think about how you could position yourself. It helps Mm -hmm. get you thinking about how do I identify organizations that are the right fit for me? Like all of that is really important. And I, I think that this is also important to name is that it's not, you don't have to be like a fake version of yourself. You shouldn't be a fake version of yourself. You should go in authentically as yourself. Like that is where some of the most meaningful career moments can happen is in those conversations with people. So it's one of those things I've learned that I'm going to keep saying over and over and hopefully it sinks in with people. Um, but until you do it for yourself, it's going to be, yeah, like you said, super intimidating, but it's I critical. Think- Yeah. And what you just said too, I I think that was for me, like, I always thought like, oh, I have to be this kind of tailored version of myself in order to network with people. But really like when I've had the most meaningful conversations is when I've shown up, which I know is easier said than done, but when I've shown up fully as myself and again, you know, whether it's just getting coffee with someone, learning more about how they entered the space. And you always learn too. like, I, I have huge imposter syndrome sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, I, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but that always, like I'm able to challenge that when I am in conversation with people, because it is such an eye-opening moment for me, because no matter who I've met, where they're at in their career path, we're kind of all in this space of learning together. And so I always find that super comforting and, and really, you know, reinforces like, okay, like, no, like I'm always going to be having these conversations where I'm learning something new. That's also really helped me kind of navigate that imposter syndrome that I used to get when networking. So let's say someone is taking our advice and they're like putting themselves out there and they're doing the networking thing and they're trying to, you know, find their mentors as they try and identify opportunities in capacity building in the foundation space. What are some of the good entry level points that you've observed certain maybe skill sets or job titles or things that you think are really worth keeping an eye out for if you are younger in your career and wanting to transition into this space? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think too, something that I've learned about just nonprofit organizations and the people who work there is that there's such a diverse range of skills. And so I always think about like when I'm looking at a job description to never limit myself to like a specific subset of skills, but to be really open. Um, And I think having that adaptability and that flexibility would be, you know, just with your skill sets is really important when looking for a job in this space. You know, when I first applied to Mission Capital, I didn't have fundraising experience, you know, and I thought for a second, like, oh, I need to have said, like, I've raised this amount of money, which again, I think is a great thing to share in an interview on your resume and a cover letter. But just realizing too, specifically for fundraising, it is a lot about relationship building and being in relationship with other people. So if you have skills that kind of contribute to that, whether it's communications, whether it's kind of working on a collaborative team project in the past, it's a lot about that like relationship building. So I think a lot of times when I talk to people who are interested in having a career in fundraising, they're thinking of kind of those hard fundraising skills. And it doesn't always have to be those hard fundraising skills. Like you can have those other like people oriented relationship building skills that you can bring to the table as well. And that I think a lot of organizations are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned communication skills, relationship building skills. Are there other skill sets that you think students should really emphasize that they bring to the table? I think we spoke a little bit about imposter syndrome and people feeling like, oh, I am not qualified to apply to stuff. What advice would you give to somebody who feels like they're coming out of school? 
they're struggling to speak about their skill sets and what they can bring to the table. Any, yeah, any advice to, to folks who are in that headspace? Yeah, it's hard. Um, and it's something that I still, you know, work on today. But I think especially when you graduated college, you know, that imposter syndrome can be present. But Miriam, actually something that you said earlier has really helped me, especially like when I've gotten into the interview stage, is just recognizing that you have as much to contribute to the conversation as they do. And as much as they are interviewing you, you are also interviewing them. And so I think a lot of times I always felt, oh, like I really need to mold myself to this job description. But really, I think um, when you're in interviews with other people, they're really wanting to learn more about you. And, And the same for you, like asking questions about their organization's culture and sharing what's important to you and what kind of environment you want to work in is also really important. Um, So that's helped me a lot is just kind of seeing interviews, not so much as like a top down approach, but really a conversation. And then with just skill sets and like fundraising specifically, I think fundraising is also so much about storytelling. And again, I know that sometimes that doesn't seem like a skill you'd put on your resume, but when you are in conversation with people and you're able to tell the story of something that's important to you, because a lot of times in fundraising, you're telling the story of the organization's mission. And so just having, you know, kind of, again, those soft skills, when I say soft, I don't even know if I like that term so much, but just having those storytelling skills and being able to be in conversation with people that really comes out in your interview as well. Yeah. I also feel weird about the phrase soft skills. Like I don't, they are also very important. They're harder to quantify certainly, but like just as important. And the other thing I kind of want to tie back of why it's important to interview your interviewer and to really get to know the organization is not just because it makes you seem more interesting and thoughtful by asking good questions, which of course it does very good for helping you stand out in an interview, but social change work is really hard. You've mentioned that like philanthropy is challenging, not just in like the work that you're doing, but sort of the, the bigger picture dynamics that are at play in fundraising and philanthropy. And so when you are stepping into a team or an organization, being around people who see the issues the way that you do, who are aligned, and not everybody's going to align with you on everything, on every issue, of course, but knowing that you're going into an environment that at its core is trying to work on the things that you also care about, that is trying to be better. And when you are not in those places, it can be extremely isolating. It can be really draining. That's just something to to name is I think that that's why it's also important to interview your interviewer is because this work is really hard and why make it harder on yourself by being the only person who is trying to like dismantle white supremacy in the workplace like that. That's a tough order for anybody to do on their own. Right. So that's just something I wanted to, to call out. No. And I, I agree. And it is very challenging. And I think too, like showing up with like your own lived experience and like with your identity is so important in systems change work. Yeah. I mean, I think people often ask me, how much should I be myself? Like, how should I like, even what should I be wearing? Like, what kind of background should I have? People get really fixated on the presentation, which I totally understand why that happens. But to your point, of course, you should always be like prepared and professional. But even that phrase professional is often uh, conflated with something that is just like, what we've considered to be professional for a long time, it may not actually be, you know, if you are going into an interview and 
your concern is, or you feel uncomfortable with like being yourself or you're the shirt you're wearing, then that's a very strong signal that maybe it's not going to be a good environment for you. Like over tailoring yourself for any interview can actually have a pretty bad consequence for your happiness and your productivity there. But I don't know, what were you going to say about it? No, I was exactly, I fully agree. And I was just going to say, you know, that's, that's a part of white dominant culture is like, if, and if you are feeling that way and like, that's not, again, that, like you just said, a signal that that may not be the best fit or the best place for you to work. Um, and I do think that a lot of organizations from what I'm seeing, because again, the nonprofit space has been so steeped in this white dominant culture. I do think that organizations are now also trying to reevaluate and reimagine the hiring process. Like how can we move away from those like white supremacist ideals of like, again, like what does professional mean? Like, what do we mean by that? What do we really mean by that? And, and just question that. And so I think that's another thing that's sort of, I'm really passionate about too, is just there, like we talked about earlier, there is a racial leadership gap in this space. And I think a lot of times the narrative has been like, oh, well, you know, they're just not applying for these jobs or they don't have the skill set for these jobs or, you know, this, this, and this. But really it's about like, how can an organization change its environment and its culture in order to be more centered in belonging and to be moved, be moving away from that white dominant culture. And I think that's so important. So I hope to see more interviews where people do feel like they can show up as their authentic selves and to not, you know, again, have to over tailor yourself or, or do these things in order to fit into this more like white dominant space. And so I'm hoping to see a lot more change in that area. Yeah. I guess to sort of round out the conversation, is there anything else that you think is really exciting as a trend or as a shift happening in the philanthropy or development space that you would tell people to to look out for as they try and maneuver into the space? We've spoken about trust-based philanthropy, community foundations, sort of asking questions around racial equity when you're in those conversations. Anything else that you would share to people, particularly, again, like those who are maybe entry level who are trying to get their foot in the door, anything else you'd call out for them? I mean, there's so many things that are changing right now and it's good. And I think also too, I just want to name, I think, especially like in the last year or so, it's also good, like in the interview process to see sometimes on the job description, like it'll, like they'll have a statement on there. And sometimes I'm always wary of like it being very surface level. Like how can you really like dig into that conversation? So I would just say that, but even with job descriptions, this may not sound like a big deal, but it is. Um, I think a lot of organizations now, companies, when they're talking about like building a more equitable hiring process, like even just listing the salary range on a job description, like that's something that, you know, you don't think about, but is so important on the organization and the company's end to do, because when people are applying for jobs, it's really important for people to know like how they can show up for themselves, how they can advocate for themselves. And then having that salary range on a job description, I think is so important and so critical. So that's like a small, I mean, it's not a small thing, but that's like one thing I can think of when we're talking about building out these more equitable hiring processes to just be more mindful and intentional with writing the job description, giving applicants more information from the start. So they are able to then really, again, advocate for themselves throughout the hiring and the interview process. Yeah. I feel like I keep turning this about second day, but I just wanted to share, like we, we talked about what is professional and how do you evaluate if someone is like a potential good fit for your organization? 
I think one of the things that has been really effective about Second Day is that we intentionally, when we partner with employers and nonprofits, when we send them student information, we don't just send them their resume or their GPA or sort of one a one-dimensional piece of paper on who they are. We have multiple different touch points. We include our own like notes about our personal conversation, how we think that they will really show up for that organization. It's a very holistic picture. And of course, it's still incomplete, but we don't do cover letters. We don't do pure resume because that does really reinforce these ideas of like what is professional through the lens of white supremacy and like white dominant culture. And we have to, even in the way that we present ourselves on paper or go into an interview, rethink those dynamics. And so I think that's something that we're just also very passionate about and excited about. And what that means for job applicants, like you said, is like, be mindful of the kind of information you're given, how transparent is the hiring process? What is it like interacting with the people through the hiring process? How comfortable are you? All of that stuff really does add up to what is the company culture? Because I think that's a question I get a lot of like, how do you tell what the company culture is? And I was like, you're seeing it like in action, like the way that they interact with you and the way they communicate with you and how you feel in those communications is a very good indicator of that. So not to keep touting second day, but I just, I think it's really important to name. No, and I I do. And I love that holistic approach. And I mean, I'm also going to do like a plug of second day, but just the launch pad that you all have online too. Like I wish, like I was looking at that earlier and I was like, wow, I wish I had this when I was in college, when I was applying for jobs, just so I knew a little bit more about these different positions that you can kind of go into because that's not always visible. And so just having, I guess, that as a resource too, like while applying and while interviewing and just knowing kind of what skills to pull out, what to talk about is really, I think, such a great resource. Thank you. I appreciate that. And like I said, and we've been talking about, it doesn't replace networking and conversations. We're not automating anything, but yeah, I think just having information out there, access to tactical steps and advice is is a big part of why the social impact space is really challenging to break into. But I'm so grateful that you found your way in, that you are still doing this work, that you're doing it so thoughtfully. Every conversation we have, I, I really do learn a lot. And I think there's so much that people can take from this conversation. And no matter what they're interested in, I think that that's always really powerful. So again, thank you for being in conversation with me, for giving your time and your energy and your wisdom. It's just, it's hugely appreciated. Thank you. And I'm, this was such a great conversation. I always enjoy our conversations and I feel exactly the same way, constantly learning from you from second day. Uh, So really excited just to see where second day goes and also just to continue connecting with your students and the mentorship opportunities has been wonderful. So really appreciate you, Miriam, and all that you do. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode, for listening the last couple of months to the careers they didn't tell you about podcast with second day. I am super grateful to all of our guests who have taken time to give their wisdom, their energy, all of their perspective on different really interesting areas of social impact. We hope that you guys have gotten a lot out of it. We certainly have. We want to let y'all know this is our last episode of 2021. We will be back in the new year. Definitely recommend taking the holidays to go back and listen to some of these episodes. There is great inspiration, great advice nestled in all of these episodes. You can also find extra content on the Launchpad, which is our online platform that has a bunch of social impact career guides at launchpad.secondday.org. If you have any questions, any feedback, any messages you want to send me about the podcast, Second Day, or anything else, 
you can email me at Miriam at secondday.org. That's Miriam spelled M-A-R-I-A-M at second day. That's second day with two D's dot O-R-G. Have a great holiday season and we'll see you in 2022. The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, a 501c3 organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Fia Luongo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza and can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license.